Ready? Hello. Hello, Danny. How are you? Oh, well, we have to do the welcome. Hello. Welcome oh. to No Kidding Me Too. <laughs> All right. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the No Kidding Me Too podcast, where my dad and I mess up our intro almost every time we record. And I'm, I'm Danny Joey Pants. I'm not and your I'm, dad, just so you know. I mean, I'm her dad. I'm Danny's dad. Right, my dad. Danny. Yeah. Speaking now, Danny. Yeah. Um, so this week is a very exciting week because my father, Joey Pants, does not know who our guest is. It's a complete and utter surprise. I'm very excited. I had this thought and it was funny. I ha- As I was thinking the thought, you literally talked about the person. So I was like, okay, it, it, it has to happen. So I reached out to them and they were very excited to do it. So I'm just very excited. Do you have any idea who you think it is? I literally talked about the person a while ago. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't, you know, I have no idea who it is. And I I have some anxiety because I hope I at least know who the person is. Well, I won't say whether or not you do because I'll leave you in suspense. But if your anxiety is too much, let me know and I will tell you. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. How, how are you this week, Dad? As we wait for our guests to arrive. You're in L.A. working. How's working with COVID? You know, people have been vaccinated. They're, uh, um, everyone is still masking up and being tested. And work was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm doing the final episode of Tacoma FD on HBO Max. And it's, it's great. The guys, you know, uh, the Super Trooper guys and gals and I have a lot of fun with them and they're wonderfully talented and funny and I'm going to stop this now because our guest is okay Okay, so our guest has arrived my dad doesn't know who they are and I'm so excited to introduce to you our guest but not introduce to my dad because dad you do know this guest oh it's Jordan Hi, Jordan. Jordan. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, my friend. Good to see you. He's got a he's got a man's voice. <laughs> you're, you had a you had you were like a you were like a tenor last time I talked to you. <laughs> I was a young kid back then. I know. Yeah, you look wonderful. I mean, I I you look the same. God bless you. <laughs> it's good to see you. you. Look great as always, Danny. It's great to see you. You too. It's been so long. Where are you? I'm still in Pennsylvania. And you're married. Tell me all about that. Yeah, we got married during the pandemic, uh, August 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. No, it was um, it was nice. Small wedding. We're we're terrible at telling people we don't want them to come to our wedding, so it worked out. You know. Did you tell them you were registered at Bank of of America? I didn't get. I didn't even get an announcement. I would have sent you a toaster. No, I appreciate it. No, we it was just us, two friends and the cats. That's that's all we needed for the wedding. Oh wow. For our listeners to give some backstory, Jordan and I met in Pennsylvania in 2000 uh, uh roughly 2009 or 8 2008, and, yeah. And uh 
you know, I'd been diagnosed, I think, in 2008, seven, um, and I was just at the beginning of, of uh, my recovery journey, and I was very fascinated with mental health, and, uh, and I guess uh, the, my movie Campus had come out, which was like a calling card to the mental health community, and I, I met Jordan at a talk, uh, and you were in a wheelchair, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you were what? So if we do the math, you were like 18 years old, right? I was 18. That's right. And I, I met this, you know, very charming, sh- sharp, smart kid with a thousand, a ton of questions is with his mom and dad. How are they doing, by the way? They're great. They're both retired and professional grandparents. Congratulations. I'm a professional grandparent too, but Jordan had attempted suicide by throwing himself out of a ninth floor bedroom window. And that was a result of, of uh, him, his being in a wheelchair. And I was like fascinated uh, by your clarity, the, the, the zest for life that you had, Jordan, after which you survived your uh, uncompleted suicide attempt. But but I was so fascinated with Jordan and and by a lot of people that I I was meeting as a result of these talks that I was doing around the country. I called up Marco and a couple of friends, filmmaker friends of mine. I said, "Let's make a documentary. This kid, this kid's gonna graduate in two days. He's going to his graduation. So tell him to keep his tuxedo, don't return it, and his cap and gown." And we'll reenact him getting ready for it, but go shoot the graduation. And that's how we started making that documentary. Does that kind of jive with what your memory too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we met uh, at a, you, you were at a talk and it was a uh, panel discussion and you were the last to go. You knocked it out of the park as always. And uh, afterwards, the Q&A started like every Q&A, just awkward silence. And uh, I asked my mom to wheel me to the microphone to ask a question. And uh, I said something along the lines of how can we help young adults talk about suicide and mental health in an open and honest way? Um, And then two weeks later, apparently Joe Pence wants me to go to the Capitol to share my story (laughs) in front of Congress. And that was actually my first ever public speaking engagement was speaking to Congress uh, with you. And so, I mean, it was an easy crowd, but it, it was an incredible moment to have that with my parents and you know, I always say whenever I'm speaking, this all came so close to never happening. And there are just so many what ifs after the suicide attempt to lead me to where I am now. And meeting you, talking to you, <laughs> you answering so many of my questions and, and taking me on this journey of no kidding me too, is something I tell stories about it all the time. And still my dad and I, uh, my mom especially, but my dad and I will still joke about some of the conversations you and I had at the very beginning there. Ah, that is awesome. That is awesome. I was talking to some friends about this, uh, the studies that they've done with people who, uh, uncompleted suicides, people that have jumped off of bridges and, and, and survived. And, and they, you know, kind of all have that same thought. Like, I can't take it back. You know, like I, I made the commitment and now as they're falling, to the ground in your case that's this is it i can't take it back 
did you have that epiphany? I, we've never talked about this. Yeah. So I, I mean, for me, you know, when I woke up in the hospital, uh, to this day, I don't remember the actual act of going out of my window. Um, I remember hitting the ground. I remember the helicopter. It was so loud. And then when I wake up in the hospital, I, I have no idea what happened. I just know I have a feeding tube. I know I had a trach in my throat and I saw all these different scars, but just had no idea exactly what happened. And then my sister Tara is the one who told me I went out of my window, that I was sober and that no one else was in the room and trying to let me like put the pieces together. And in that moment, there's really two things I didn't have to accept, but I was willing to. Uh, so one, physically, my body would never be the same after a nine-story fall. You know, that's just the reality of falling 100 feet and the injuries that came along with it. So when Tara told me what happened, there's nothing I can do at that point to take that back. Um, and the second thing was that this was a suicide attempt. And I think by being willing to accept both of those things and being in the process of it, that's what led me to uh, allow me to share my story. But that first initial thought is just, what am I going to do with my life now? Uh, am I ever going to be the same emotionally, mentally? And you know, the first time I told my story, I thought it would be my last because my way of thinking at it at 18 was I don't think I could ever affect uh, or impact enough people with my story to the point where I'd be sharing it 12 years later. But I should have been saying how many people have been impacted by mental health and because of that, it allows us to have a space to share our stories and to hear other voices. Um, and so all of that happening at 18 and so soon after the suicide attempt, I'm very, very fortunate to have that opportunity to say yes and sharing my story. You're telling the story now. I just had this recollection. Uh, it was so compelling that it never, I never forgot it. And it was when I was talking to you and you described that you'd been diagnosed with clinical depression and that there was this long, dark hallway that you had to go down to with a very busy gymnasium throughway because we, I, we went and visited your high school that, that, that in order for you to go to see the guidance counselor, you had to walk this long, dark hallway and, uh, and your, the shame that you felt that some, some kids might see you walking down there, uh, you, you didn't go and ask for the help that you so, so seriously needed. And, and that, you know, that's been something that we've been on this journey, uh, in our own way, trying to break down the wall of discrimination, shame, and bigotry in regards to mental disease. I have not thought about that in a long time. I completely, now that's great because I'm putting that in the next presentation. That's that's a key part of the next speech. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's, it's amazing to think, I'm so glad you said that because it's amazing to think of that moment and how I felt then. So like this morning I'm speaking to a class and the school counselor is introducing me and talking about how they've been having lessons of mindfulness and meditation and talking about the different coping skills. And to think, Joey, where we were not that long ago in 2008, and to then see how Gen Z is opening up and talking about mental health, specifically going to see a guidance counselor, where that's just a normalized thing now. And it's amazing just how far we've come in that short period of time. Our idea was is to make the discussion uh, cool and trendy. And that's where the, that's where the education comes in. 
is to be able to talk to kids and not even elementary school, daycare, uh, preschool, uh, giving them coping mechanisms like yoga, stretching, uh, you know, uh, the, describing what fear uh, is or how anxiety feels. And, and, you know, and that's a button to, you know, talk to your friend next to you. I, this is how I feel today. What you, what are you doing? Did you go to college? Uh, you, uh, you know, what are you a psychologist now? <laughs> you know, what's funny, Joey is, um, I remember the, the day I realized I was going to take time off from school to pursue mental health advocacy full time. It was one of the screenings for no kidding me too. And I was talking to one of my professors and I said, Hey, um, I have to go cause we're doing this screening. I'm really excited for it. And he said, well, you have an obligation because you made um, a commitment to this, your class and me, your professor to be here. And like in, in my mind, I'm like, all right, so mental health, which is helping people talk about it and mental health advocacy and helping people feel like they're alone or math. <laughs> it's like it was one of those moments where and and then there were so many things that came after that because after doing that with no kidding me too um i the 2010 was the year when i realized life was just going in a different direction um because within eight months that's when uh, i was fortunate enough to share my story on dr phil good morning america the early show cnn espn sports illustrated um and people magazine and so what that was, was kind of the tipping point of the media talking about teenage mental health. And a lot of that was because of cyberbullying. And it was the first time we heard cases around the country and not just the local places where you heard uh, a teenager taking their own life. Now we're national stories where people were actually covering this. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to share my story during that time. And now I'm on year 12 uh, of still speaking to middle schools, high schools, and colleges. And now my new role is to help new speakers come on and become public speakers and to help the current ones grow their presentations. And um, that was always my goal was to tell my story so I don't have to anymore because there's already so many people doing it for me. Um, and so to have that opportunity is just amazing because, Joey, you know, the vehicle for erasing stigma has always been stories. I mean, no matter what we talk about in this history, as far as what was stigmatized, um, when we talk about breast cancer and the conversation of that being stigmatized, stories were the vehicle that allowed us to talk about it in the way that we do today. And I think with you saying, Jordan's graduating, we have to get a film crew there <laughs> and make sure people see this, um, is one of the greatest moments that you know I've ever had, most emotional moments I've had with my dad, especially because um, I actually do this keynote speech where I read a letter that I write to my 18-year-old self who's laying in the hospital bed and just explaining what happened and what's to come and what I get to look forward to, but just explaining the current circumstances. And one of the things I say in there, and it's like the one thing that might make me cry, it's like, I got to be careful on depending on the day. I described graduation, um, especially being able to see it. And I say that um, you'll grab your walker and step by step, you'll walk towards dad and you won't see anyone else around you because you'll look at him shaking, tears going down his face. And you're wondering to yourself, is he crying because he's sad? And it's no, 
it was not even a year ago. He was watching you laying nine stories beneath your window, dying, begging the EMTs not to take you away so my mom could see me one more time. And here I am, step by step, walking towards him. And that's why you see those tears. And that's why you see that smile. It'll be the greatest day of your life until you say yes in August of 2020 and get married. Um, that moment, Joey, is just one of the things my family and I always talk about, something that means so much to me. And it's such a significant moment, too, um, for people who have heard my story. So you were the one who <laughs> just all of a sudden said, let's get a camera crew down there. Now, the school wasn't too happy about it. That's, that's a side. I think I was in Kentucky. I wasn't even there. <laughs> that's uh, one of my dad's favorite side note uh, director commentary moments is um, whenever people say to him, wow, that graduation moment, that was the part that's always emotional and gets people to cry. My dad said, man, everyone was so pissed at me. <laughs> Why? This isn't the Jordan show. And um, <laughs> that's that's the one thing my dad always laughs about. <laughs> oh, I love it. So Jordan. Some of our listeners may have seen our documentary, No Kidding Me Too, which obviously seems like you are the inspiration for. For those who haven't, we would love to hear your story from you. My dad has obviously already talked about it a little bit, but now you share it all the time. And I I know it. And I think you're such an inspiration and you're so incredibly strong. And I'd love to just hear it again from you. Yeah, I mean, I'm so fortunate to have uh, my mom and dad, who both worked in school districts uh, for over 30 years, and then my sister, Tara, who I consider my best friend to this day, who's five years older than me. Um, the first time that I noticed that there was something different with me was in seventh grade. And I knew I had this feeling of, I don't belong, and I feel lonely, but I'm surrounded by hundreds of people at school. So why do I feel this way? Um, I remember just being up late at night and not sure exactly why I couldn't stop these thoughts and just slow them down so that I could fall asleep. And I remember uh, I went through some type of seventh grade breakup because we had been together for so long, which is like two months in middle school. And I remember I was still sad about it like months after. And I remember thinking to myself, I feel like people don't stay this sad this long. But... I didn't know what that was. Um, we, we didn't learn about mental health. And the school counselor at my middle school, the kids who were going to see her had parents who had passed away or their parents were going through a divorce. Like, so I always thought it has to be a crisis in order for me to go and seek help. Um, so a lot of it, I just hid away. I, I just kept inside. But I would also hide that through laughing, through smiling, through telling jokes, being the class clown, um, sports. So I tried to cope with it in the best way that I could. Uh, but once I got to high school, you know, for guys, there are a few things that we struggle with, especially at a younger age. One, it's just healthy communication because it's not naturally, it doesn't come naturally for us sometimes. Two, when one of us is struggling, we don't usually have the, the healthiest suggestions as far as coping skills in that moment. And also, too, it's sometimes for guys, we don't allow each other to sit in our emotions and just give us space to feel what we're going through. A lot of times it's, ah, it's okay. You'll get over it. And it'll be fine. And so because of that, once I got to high school, a lot of that fell into drinking. Drinking was not only a way to mask how I was, I was feeling, but that's also the one time I could be vulnerable. Like when we were drunk, that's the one time I could say anything emotional. I could cry. 
I could get really upset if I was drunk. And then when I woke up in the morning, I could just say I didn't mean it because I was drunk or I would just forget about it. And then when I was in 10th grade, so I was 16 when I was diagnosed with depression. And I was really confused because I didn't know what the difference was between feeling depressed versus depression. And the best way that I try and explain it when I'm speaking to students is that anyone at any given point in time can feel depressed, but more times than not, that person knows what they're depressed about. Uh, so maybe it's an anniversary of something very saddening to them, going through a difficult time in school, a breakup, any and all things global pandemic related. But that person like, knows why they're crying, why they don't feel like themselves. They know why they're depressed. But like with depression, I can wake up one day and have no idea why I feel so sad, why I don't want to wake up and get out of bed, why I'm crying for no reason, why the simple tasks like brushing my teeth or taking a shower seems so hard to do on certain days. And so for me, that took time to understand and to get. Also, therapy when you're 16, is just it's awkward sometimes trying to find the right therapist. That was a process for me. Now, I always tell students that the one mistake a lot of young adults make is they go to see one therapist and the first person they see is the right one for them. Um, they say, well, I tried talk therapy. It's not for me. And they don't go back. But for me in the process, like I always equate it to a bad first date in that like I've had bad first dates. None of them were my fault, but it doesn't stop you from dating completely. You just move on to you find what works for you. And so that's what that process was like in finding a therapist. But even once I was diagnosed with depression, and even once I was prescribed medication, I didn't understand it because like, I had facts, but there were no stories to give context to those facts and give me a better understanding. The other thing too, going through high school when I was at a really low point, I know a lot of people say, what could have someone done differently or what could you have done differently looking back in high school? But I always, I always say, talking about mental health is a collective like effort. So... I think of it like um, basketball practice and games. We all stretched beforehand together as a team or as a small group. And if a, a trainer said to me, Jordan, you have to stretch before every game or every practice, and I walk in the gym and no one else is stretching, I might still stretch. But there's also a part of me that might look around and say, well, no one else is and they haven't pulled anything. So why do I need to stretch? So when it comes to mental health, if no one else was saying anything, then I definitely wasn't. I wasn't going to be that one person. That led to my junior year of high school. I struggled academically, just putting so much pressure on myself. Led me to go to a behavioral hospital because of just still not wanting to open up and admit how I was feeling, what I was going through. And then by the time I got to the beginning of my senior year, that's when my drinking had got to just, it was a progressive thing. Um, it wasn't like my first time drinking when I was in ninth grade, all these terrible things happened. It was just that night. And I, I said, oh, okay, well, that's drinking. And it progressively got to the point where it was my senior year of high school when I wasn't even sure why I was drinking at that point or why I was drinking that often or that much. I didn't have an answer for that. And so my senior year of high school, so this is September of 2008 or 2007, excuse me. Um, I attempted to take my own life by going out of my nine-story bedroom window. Um, when I hit the ground 100 feet below, I broke my left uh, fibula. I broke my left tibia, my left femur, uh, my pelvis, my jaw in four different places, uh, my left wrist, uh, had fractures to my skull, and uh, was bleeding internally from my brain and my organs. Uh, so when I was going to the hospital that night, it wasn't until the fifth day I was there that my parents would, were told I would survive. Um, but it would be a long physical recovery. 
I was in a coma for five days uh, in the ICU for two weeks. I still don't remember one moment of being in that ICU, but I wake up in this hospital and my sister's the one who told me what happened. Um, and like I said, and, and at that point, you know, I was down to 80 pounds um, and I, I just couldn't move and I, I couldn't talk. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen at that point with life in general. Um, but while I was in there, there was a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper who asked my dad if he could interview me. Um, my mom said no immediately. <laughs> this is, I was still in the ICU when this Mike Vitez is the name of the reporter. He, he sent this email. And so my mom said no immediately. My therapist at that time was so angry at my dad for even entertaining the idea of having a reporter come into my hospital room and interview me. Um, but my dad left it up to me. And I said yes almost immediately within that first conversation. When you can't move and you can't talk, you really only have your thoughts and your feelings. And not a ton of people want to listen to them because it's really uncomfortable to hear that coming from me during that time period. And I figured because of that, why don't I share my story? I have no idea who this is going to affect. I'm sure this will probably just go into the local section, but why don't I go ahead and just spell out everything about my story in hopes that it you know, helps anyone listening or reading or watching. Um, and so you know, when that story came out, I had no idea until the day before that it would be the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Had no idea it would run across the country. Uh, so I definitely didn't expect the amount of feedback that it received. You know, I, I never wanted to be on TV. I, I never wanted to be in a magazine or for there to be articles written about me. I just wanted to help people because I knew what it felt like to feel like I was the only one going through what I was. And I also knew that that's how we normalize things. That's how we are able to talk about this in such an open way is by sharing our stories and our experiences and what we've gone through. And at that point, if I just keep that story to myself, I don't know what good it's doing. So because of that, I figured why not share it? Um, and I was able to graduate on time with the rest of my class and was filmed thanks to Joey uh, of me walking at graduation using a walker. And from that point forward, I just never stopped sharing my story. October of 2008 was the first time I gave a presentation in front of a thousand high schoolers. It was terrible. I was a mess. I had no cards. It was just <laughs> all over the place. I had no like sense of timing. I didn't understand how humor worked at that point. I, I just remember the one thing that kept me going from that point forward and still does. It's the kids that come and talk to you afterwards. After that presentation, to just, and they're not just asking questions. A lot of times they're just telling you what it meant to them. And like the ones that just always stick with you are the kids who come up to you and they have tears in their eyes. They don't say anything. They just say, thank you. And they give you a hug and, and that's it. And they walk away with, with sharing, you know, speaking at schools, I've been able to speak to so many. And at a certain point, you just think, all right, well, I hope someone gets something out of it and you move on to the next school. But then you have these moments that are like, receiving a flower from a garden where I remember I was speaking. I, actually, I was at lunch with my friend. We were going to get burgers and um, we both said, all right, let's go. And I go to pay. And this guy comes out of nowhere and says, hey, I would like to pay for their meals. And I asked him, well, thank you. But why did you pay for you know our meals? I appreciate it. And he said, you spoke at my high school eight years ago and you saved my life. The least I can do is buy you a burger. And like that's, it's literally like planting a garden and just forgetting about it eight years ago. 
And then someone comes to you and they just give you this bouquet of flowers that you had no idea was growing the entire time. And that's, that's why I still love this 12 years later. That's why I, I still, whenever I give a presentation, no, no matter how many presentations it is that week, that day, whatever it may be, you just never know what you're going to say that can impact someone's life, especially speaking to middle schools and high schoolers. You could say something that they remember for the rest of their life. And that's such a beautiful part of being a part of mental health ad- advocacy and suicide prevention is that I get to be a part of something that's bigger than just me. And by me sharing my voice, I hope it elevates a thousand other voices so that I get to just sit back and and watch everyone else be able to do the same things I did when I was younger. I don't know if we talked or I got an email from you or your mom or your dad, but your fibia grew back, right? It grew. The femur. The femur. Yeah. Tell tell me about that. That's just, I just didn't know that was possible. By the way, I, I didn't know what a femur was, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I didn't know what a lot of things were until I uh, was in the hospital. So no, it's, it's okay. So physically, it took like four years to be able to walk again. But it just didn't, it didn't feel like four years because it was never the goal. And so in the midst of this, the whole plan was to physically become more independent. So if that meant wheeling myself in my own wheelchair, that's what it meant. If it meant crutches, walker, whatever it was, that's what it meant. So one of the surgeries that I had, um, which really the the biggest issue today and before, um, was the tightness in my muscles where the injuries were. Um, So they had to do a surgery where they pretty much do a Z-cut in those muscles to allow them to stretch over time through pretty painful physical therapy. Um, And while they were doing that surgery, uh, they saw that the femur grew back, which I didn't know, like, I don't know. I guess someone noticed. And so when I woke up, uh, my dad just handed me this, this rod. And that, that was the rod that was in my femur. Um, because it grew back, I got to keep that. I probably should have turned it into a putter or something, but it's just, it's laying around <laughs> somewhere. But I had no idea that could happen. That's Wonderful. amazing. So Jordan, were you ever bullied or did you have any traumatic childhood uh, traumas happen to you? No, well, so this is a good one. This is a good question. So for me, there's this not necessarily bullying because you don't feel like it when you're younger. So when you experience microaggressions Mm -hmm. at a really young age, you don't know what's going on. And because a lot of times it's, it doesn't seem racist. Like when you're in a school and people around you aren't like Mm -hmm. waving things that seem racist or sound racist, you're you're not exactly sure what it is. And so Mm -hmm. like being picked on and hearing these comments over and over again of like, wow, Jordan, uh, you talk white or wow, it's it's amazing you play golf because you're black. Um, It's like, um, there's like these little itty bitty moments that you hear um, at a very young age. And then it just, it kind of builds up and it builds up and you just take it. Cause we, again, we didn't learn about any of this when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And so going through that, there was always this feeling of like, I didn't belong. Um, And so in two ways. And so when I went from in seventh grade, I moved and it was a predominantly white high school. I think it was like 5% black students Mm -hmm. at that time. And so when you're the only black student in a classroom, if you ask any black person, they'll tell you, you have the community on your back. You are representing for everyone in that Mm -hmm. moment. And like psychologically, when you're a teenager, (laughs) 
taking that into account and then also trying to pay attention and just feel like you fit in can be a really difficult thing and can be a really lonely thing. You know, I was just on a um, panel discussion back in February and we were talking about the black experience. And one of the psychologists that were on the panel said, you cannot take away racism from mental health. Like the two coincide, they happen at the same time and you're affected by it. And like, again, no one had ever said that to me or never explained it in that way. So when I was younger and I was growing up, there's a few things going on. So we talked about kind of the microaggressions being at a predominantly white school. Then in the black community, we just, we don't define things. That's what I'll say. We don't define it. So we have the uncle that drinks too much, but we probably won't say alcoholic. Um, we might have the, um, we might have therapists that we know we can go to, but we might talk to someone else within our community because maybe that's who we trust. My barber feels like he's a therapist because I, I talk to him a lot of times and he's saying the things that people unpack in a barbershop, but especially like he is at his home now, but he's like, when people come here and I'm cutting their hair, the things that black people will unpack in front of you is a lot to take on. And no, that's not done in a therapy session, but it's done in a barbershop. And it's like, you know, going to a church, I, I've heard black people talk about alcoholism, addiction, stress, anxiety, depression, all during church and talking about it and, and looking to a higher power. But it's not like we go to events where it's like a community and we're actually talking about it in group therapy, um, because then it would sound and it would look a little different. So because of that, and if you look and let's go back to entertainment, if we look at movies and TV shows up to a certain point, whenever there was a therapy scene, not a ton of black people. Whenever there was a therapy scene, definitely not a ton of black therapists. So when you see that, you then start to question, does this even really affect me? Or does this, what, what's going on here? So like a perfect example of this is I remember speaking, this happened a few times, speaking at a college and there were a group of kids who came up to talk to me afterwards. It was like five or six who were black students. And they said to me, we heard there was a talk about depression and suicide and we weren't going to come until we saw your poster and we saw that a black man was talking about it. And that's wow. why we came. So the representation within anything, but especially within mental health, makes you feel like, oh, this can affect me. And oh, we can talk about it. But that's another thing I just never had as a kid and even still going throughout high school too. Um, so it's, it's interesting of like the bullying aspect where I didn't face that type of bullying. Um, but at the same time, internally, there's so much like bullying within myself of wondering, mm -hmm. do I belong here? Do I fit in? Can I talk about this? That can be really difficult. Yeah, because when you're talking about your story, I related to so much of it. Like when you said, you know, the people going to the guidance counselor had their parents getting divorced or someone died. And that's something I relate to because I would always feel sad. And it's like, well, why? Like my mom was a model. My dad's an actor. I have a very blessed life. Why am I crying all the time? It's interesting that that is like a, a through line for you that you maybe didn't even know was affecting you because you weren't taught. And it's it's like I look at my nephews and you take something away from them and they cry, right? Because they don't know how to communicate. They just know how to emote. So it's like 
that's how we feel. I don't think that ever goes away. We just wait, learn but, how to deal with but it. They're, but they're communicating at that point. Well, they're, they're communicating, but they're, only with emotions, not with words. And they don't. So it's like when you're, I don't know if I'm getting. By the confused, way, you're talking about 18 month old uh, babies. She's not yes. talking about 12 year olds. Um, but no, I feel like that feeling listeners. doesn't. If you don't, if you don't explain it to them as maybe Jordan, when you were growing up, it wasn't explained or when I was growing up, it wasn't explained until later on that like you feel this way because of this. You're just going to feel like, why do I feel like this? And like when you see people crying in a store, kids crying in a store and the parents just like stop crying, you're being a brat. That's not healthy because they have an emotion to something that's happened. And if you just say, don't cry or you can't feel that way, then they're going to every time they feel that way, be like, well, that's not good. I shouldn't feel that way. So I just, I love your story for those reasons is because so many people can relate to it. Cause I feel like that's everyone's, I mean, everyone has different experiences with their, with who they are, but there's reasons for why we feel and we just have to find them and communicate them and share them with our community and those who can relate to them. Does that make sense? (laughs) Well, people have to appreciate it. But but Jordan, have you have you seen a, a difference? Because I I remember going out to the was it the third ward in uh, New Orleans after was it Katrina? You know, a couple a, a year later, and there was a relief package of something like three hundred million dollars that the government had given the state for people in the community, which was primarily African American. Uh, Americans who had suffered this tremendous trauma of being flooded out and that nobody was used, utilizing this, that money. People who, uh, African American traumatized families, uh, re, didn't ask for help because of the stigma and shame that was attached to it. And those who actually did would literally park their cars two or three blocks away from the building they were going in because they didn't want any of their friends that accidentally identify their car near the building. So I have two questions for you, Jordan. That, has it changed over the last 10 years, more accessible? The, the idea of the celebrities uh, uh, talking about their own experience. And secondly, what kind of training did you uh, have to go to in order to be a professional speaker? So the thing was, as far as like it getting better. um, So social media has added an extra element to it. So with social media, I can go on TikTok and figure out grounding techniques. I can, I can learn breathing exercises on an app. And so that's the one thing that is so different now where before it would have been something maybe you go to a class for, or maybe you have to have a speaker come and talk to you about these things. Where now that's the one thing where kids are exposed to so many different stories and so many different techniques they can use. But like I I go to the schools where it's predominantly black and I, I speak also at schools that are predominantly white. And like the availability of resources when it comes to mental health, especially is just lacking in the black community. And there is that stigma of asking for help because of that feeling of having to pretend like we have it all together. You know, we always say strong black man, strong black woman. And I think sometimes we take that and we feel like we have to defend it and we always have to prove that. So that's a part of it too. 
Um, there's kind of a, a distrust sometimes outside of the community as far as getting help with medication, as far as seeing a counselor, a therapist who can truly understand maybe what some people are going through. So I would say that the conversation of mental health has definitely evolved. I mean, like talking about so many different artists who talk about mental health within their songs has evolved over time. And so I think this is a generation of students who are exposed to so many of these issues and the conversation is happening. But the ability to see a counselor, the ability to seek help, the ability to see a therapist outside of school, that's the part that we're still lacking in. And I, I wish we were at a better place. And a lot of that takes legislation. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the part of breaking stigma and, and really normalizing this that I know is kind of the part people don't necessarily like to hear because it's not the sexy part of breaking stigma. But that's really what it comes down to is it comes mm -hmm. down to us making laws for each state to have specific mental health education and resources put in place in every single school. And that's where we have to get to. And I, I hope we do one day. I know only a few states have gotten to that point where they're saying we're making laws to make mental health education a necessity from kindergarten all the way through high school. That's where I'm glad that we can do that. But let's make sure we distribute that equally to everyone. And I think that's when we can ultimately get to a better place. Um, and then, yeah, as far as um, public speaking, it's, you know what, public speaking is one, it's, it's someone helping you piece together themes and helping you memorize um, parts of your story, helping you learn how to tailor your speech depending on the audience. Um, but more than anything, that's just trial and error. I mean, a lot of my presentation today is simply from jokes not working or mm -hmm. for from a lot of it is Q&A. If I get the same question over and over again, mm -hmm. obviously, I need to include that part of it into the presentation. And then as you get older, your perspective on things change. So like your story doesn't change, but your, pers your perspective might. And so the reason for why I didn't talk about mental health in high school I probably gave a completely different answer back uh, 10, 12 years ago because I was just there in the moment. We're now being 31 and looking back at 18-year-old you know, Jordan, 18 is so young. And I didn't think of it in that way back then of thinking, all right, well, this happened. I was 18. And just to think about where I was at that point and just how little I knew about mental health, a lot of that did make sense of the way I was feeling. Um, but like being a public speaker today... Then you get to learn about pausing. You get you get to learn about what really works with an audience, what um, the tone that you have to have, what makes a joke work. Um, sometimes it's a little frustrating because you're you're trying to work on a joke for like a year and and you can't understand why the audience isn't laughing. And all of a sudden it just takes one extra pause in word, and then it's hilarious to everyone. And it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, guys, it was it was a good joke before that, but I'm glad you all like it now. Um, and then all of a sudden, you just stay with that for years and it just evolves over time. You know, I was speaking today and, and then sometimes I don't remember certain parts of my speech that I added in that weren't there in the very beginning because it's just one thought, one feeling, one, one moment that you have that you get to reflect on your story. And then all of a sudden, you can say that in front of an audience. And I'm still terrified. Public speaking is terrifying. I don't, anyone who says they're not nervous before public speaking, uh, God bless them. That's, that's a remarkable talent. But for me, I, I'm always terrified before I you know, am about to speak. I'm always stressed. But I tell every speaker that's a good thing um, because I wouldn't 
if if I didn't care, I wouldn't be nervous. Um, but I, I care. Every time I speak, I care. I, I want to make sure that I give the most effective message that I can tell my story in the best way that I can. Um, because that's what I love to do is I love to be able to share a message that allows people to talk about mental health long after I leave that high school or that middle school. And that is something, again, that you get to learn over time and to help other speakers get to get there is also one of my favorite things to be able to do is to just give one tip and to see where they go from there is really awesome too. So it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, it's training. And then a lot of it is just trial and error and figuring out things because of Q and a too. That show business is an old comic comedian joke. And so I ask you, Jordan, to, to uh, repeat after me, ask me what, what's the, Secret of comedy. What's the secret of timing? Comedy? <laughs> <laughs> timing, timing. So, Jordan, where can people find you to continue hearing your story, learning from you on social media and your podcast where we can all find all of that stuff? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, mindingyourmind.org is the um, organization I speak for. That's um, where you can go. Um, the podcast is Minding Your Mind. We, we try and keep it simple with that. That's the podcast. Uh, the two hosts are myself and then Evan Transu is our other host um, who also interviews guests. And um, yeah, if you go to our website, you can see all the incredible speakers that we have. We just launched a, uh, a campaign called Live to Tell, where we have people submit their stories, um, digital content, where some people are sharing their stories by looking at a camera. Some people are speaking poetry. Some people are playing music, uh, showing off their art. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that we're having people try and share their stories uh, in, in a way that, again, normalizes this conversation and helps other people feel like they're not alone. So yeah, that's, that's where you can find us. And we will always appreciate the support. And if you would like to uh, book a speaker, book me, anyone uh, to come present at your school, we have presentations um, for as young as fifth graders. We have middle school, high school presentations. We also do parent presentations. We also do Q QPR training as well. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really incredible, I don't think I'm biased, but it's a really incredible organization and uh, do a lot of great work there. So feel free to check us out. And that's mindingyourmind.org, right? Yep, that's right. Awesome. Well... I think that's it. That was amazing. I'm so glad you were able to do this and I was able to surprise my dad and that we were just able to talk to you again and like hear your story again and just see how far you've come and like that this is now your job just to like help keep removing stigma, educate people, tell your story. It's it's a wonderful thing to see how far you've come. It's just amazing. Um, so thank you for being a part of this. Thank you. This is, this is really, it's an honor to, to be on this podcast. Thank you, Jordan. I had a blast. Daniela, what a surprise. I cannot believe. I mean, I just, what a surprise. What a, and what a wonderful surprise um, that Jordan's doing great. And he's an ad advocate. Um, and he's well and uh, married and living the life, living his life, telling his story. And it's still evolving, man. I remember meeting him when I was, I was still in high school. I think I was a freshman in high school when I met him. 
Um, 2008. Where you were like, at 2008? So junior in high? Oh, no, sophomore. End of freshman year, sophomore year. And like his story always fascinated me. And, uh, you know, relating to the the shame part of it and, and not knowing why you feel these things. And, and like he was always my favorite part of the documentary. I mean, all of it. But like there's just something about the way he can share his story now that's just so wonderful and... Yeah, I mean, I again left speechless because it's just so I'm just so honored that I can talk to people like him and our other guests about about this stuff because it just makes me feel so much better and not alone. And oh, yeah, it's just wonderful. And I hope all our listeners enjoyed him and, and go out and watch his watch the documentary. No kidding me, too you know, follow him on social media, listen to his podcast, go on to that website, book him as a speaker, as a school. And it's surprising that, you know, learning about someone's suicide attempt can be just something you listen to in your ear where we're just talking about it. We're just talking about it. It's just a conversation. It's not this like ominous thing that you used to see in the movies with this like organ music playing. It's, it's just him talking about this thing he survived and now his mission in life is just to talk about it. That's what we just all need to do. We just all need to talk about things. So I'm so glad that he, he wheeled himself up to ask that question and that you, you saw something in him. And I did never knew that he was kind of the catalyst to the whole documentary. I didn't know that. So that was really, it makes the surprise so much better today. I'm going to look at our evergreen documentary. No kidding me too. To see how young everybody was and to see uh, maybe it'd be fun to reach out. I know that I know that Dr. Bob, um, who was a heart surgeon is now a, a psychiatrist. He went, he went back to college in his late fifties. Yeah, we should, you know, when we talked with the anxiety sisters about doing a documentary, how Hoboken starting to implement that stuff. That's something we should, we should seriously think about doing another documentary. Um, and we should do it. That's, you know, we, we need to do it and, and, and we need, we need to finance it. Yeah. My dad and I just decided that we are going to make another documentary about mental health, maybe checking in with the people from the first one and all the different new methods. I mean, everything has changed. It's time for another documentary. So keep a lookout for a GoFundMe link. We're going to start raising money to do this. And it's going to be really cool. I'm very excited. Finally, I found a way to merge mental health and film. I've been very, you know, struggling with what my passions are and what I want to do with my life. And these two things, there's finally a way to merge them. And I think that's really exciting. There we go. Well, I love you, Danny. I love you, Daddy. Thanks for listening in, everybody.